0: morning, if I can pinch this, you have to bear with me today, I've got no hearing at all today. Um, Some of you know I had an ear infection in the week, which meant my ear was so painful, it's swollen and I've had to go back to the doctors and get some medication for that, but it was kind of okay. Yesterday improved, I was able to put my hearing instrument back in. Uh, so I had hearing today until about five minutes ago and the battery went, <laughs> so just as so you know, I've got no hearing at all, okay? I don't know what I'm coming over like, I might sound a bit strange, uh, maybe a bit loud, a bit quiet, keep, we'll keep, uh, Gareth busy, uh, so, but it is hard speaking when you can barely even hear your own voice, it's, it's a challenge, um. We'll see how it goes today. We've been talking about the practice of silence and solitude. It's all part of our living In It series, kind of a sub-series, if you like. I've been on about three weeks now, talking about silence and solitude. Or I, I kind of uh, said the way we could perhaps, what we could call it, intentionally second, setting aside alone time with God. Intentionally. Setting alone time, setting aside alone time, time with God. See, I can't even say speak properly. Uh, we know that Jesus, who was, he came to the earth. He was full of grace and full of truth. He was in perfect oneness with the Father, and yet he he saw prayer, silence and solitude as a vital element to his spiritual his life. Right. And if he did, it was like perfect oneness with the Father. How much more should we consider silence and solitude as something pretty important uh, to us? Last week, we started looking at the life of a guy called Elijah. Now, many of you have heard about Elijah. Uh, now, Elijah, he, uh, he, there was a series of events that took place in his life, and we see a pattern. Emerge in his alone time with God, and that's what we were kind of look, look, looking at last week. His silence and solitude, um, the silence and solitude of Elijah. He's this Old Testament prophet guy who he was one he was always battling with like the swing of emotions in his own life. He's he's like really great, doing really well. And in fact, the last um, last week, the passage that we read through. He was like, one moment, he's like at the peak of his career. He's at the real high point. And then in just like a moment, he's then, he's like slammed. He's so uh, depressed. He's down. He's overcome with fear. And um, the evil queen Jezebel, she's out to kill him. And he's freaking out. <coughs> he's, it just, it's like from high to low, almost in an instant. Um, and so he's on the run. And whilst he's on the run, he takes time out alone with God. And, you know, it wasn't altogether a positive time at first. Uh, in verse 4, uh, actually, it was First Kings 19, isn't it, we're looking at. In verse 4, I don't think I'll put it up uh, here. But his words were, his prayer was, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I've had enough. And so for us, you know, emotional creatures as we are, and maybe not as extreme as Elijah, maybe, we also can experience this onslaught, this deluge of emotions in our own lives. And most of us know that we too can find ourselves, we can be meandering through life and we can be in real positive times of life. And then in just like a, I can't do that either, In a moment, we can be just so challenged and down and stressed and emotionally devastated. In a moment. So we've started to look at how we can navigate our way through those emotional highs and lows in life and come out of the other end experiencing more freedom in God and a greater maturity in him through the practice of silence and solitude. So I started last week, and I was like unpacking this kind of pattern of events that we see in Elijah's life. Have we got—I think I've got that one. Yeah, um, it's kind of this pattern is categorised with these various stages. First of all, it's resting, then it's waiting, then it's feeling, then it's naming, then it's about hearing—my favourite pastime <laughs> event—being uh, transformed, and then finally reconnecting with society or reconnecting with. The world. Now, last week I just met had time to just start that off, and we talked about resting. I, I shared how silence and solitude—it's all about us being healthy, holistically. You know, God, is, is, He places importance on our physical well-being, and our emotional well-being, and our spiritual well-being. In fact, I was saying actually that concept of that—we kind of separate things up like that, don't we? We kind of fragmentize our life. That's alien to the scriptures. They're all kind of interwoven together, our physical, emotional, and spiritual. It's all one. It's all integrated. Elijah's... Am I coming across okay? (laughs) Sorry. I just keep checking if that's all right. Elijah's wilderness time with God, um, his time of silence and solitude, is very much rooted in him being totally rested. Having taken himself away from community, he left his servants, he said, right, I'm going to come away from community a moment, and he's going to go and be away alone with God. What what did he do? He read read his Bible, he was praying loads of, no, he slept. (laughs) He slept. And then an angel of the Lord came and fed him bread, great bread, even gluten-free bread as in there, and... It, uh, and water, probably the best spring water, you know. And it's like really cool. And then what did he do? He went back to sleep again. <laughs> and it was kind of a little pattern that occurred in his life. It was that sleep, eat, drink, <laughs> reset. Sleep, eat, drink. Let's go around the loop again. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're going to continue on from that now and say the next phase, the next uh, part of this pattern of solitude is Waiting. It's waiting, but actually the kind of waiting that this is is probably not something we would naturally consider as being a characteristic of waiting. Now keep in mind that at this point where Elijah has just had this angelic encounter, he's, he's already traveled from the northern kingdom, so he's right from near Mount Carmel, if you may. He's had this big battle, uh, big jewel thing going on in Mount Carmel. He's down there in the south in Beersheba. So that journey is around about, it's more than 100 miles, about 160 miles. I did a Google thing, you can map it out, 116 miles. But then we come to verse 8 of our passage. And Elijah is about to embark on another 40-day journey on foot to encounter God at a place called Mount Horeb. And it's in 1 Kings 19, verse 8, where it says... So he got up. My eyes are also bad as well today. I need glasses. So he got up and ate and drank. So that's some of that food and drink that the angel had presented and prepared for him. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, what I was saying, if you were here last week, you'll remember, Mount Horeb is most often referred to in the Old Testament as Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is it's, it's the place where people encountered God. Met, you know, it's where Moses encountered God at the burning bush. You remember, it's at the top of the mountain where the, the cloud come down and covered it when, when Moses met, met him there. It's where he received the Ten Commandments. So the people of the Bible, they understood Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb as the meeting, uh, meeting place, not mating place. <laughs> I thought I said that. I did, didn't I? Meeting place. <laughs> with God and uh, it's the place of revelation it's a place of encounter they encountered God there and so Elijah uh, Elijah he has set off on this journey to meet with God he wants God to speak to him he wants God to speak into his situation now we've got a map I don't know oh yeah it's quite not so bad so this is the thing, he's on a long journey again, he's just done a 116 mile walk, now this is Google Maps again, you go from, uh, uh, where was it, Beersheba down to Mount Sinai, it's actually 260 miles walk, anybody done any 260 mile walks lately? We did one on our life group th- this last week, it's about 260 miles, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. felt like it to me, uh, uh, 260 miles, consisting of all sorts of wilderness terrain, and he's out there on his own. And it was, it was just like, it was a long journey. It, the Bible says it was 40 days and 40 nights. Now, that's kind of like Old Testament writing way of saying it was a long time, okay? <laughs> Not necessarily absolutely 40 days and 40 nights. It's a long time he was walking. So many days, he's making this journey. Now, whether or not he traveled full days or partial days, took several days out to rest and collect more food as he was going along, I don't know. But whatever, it took a long time of him wandering through this wilderness place all alone. I don't know whether you noticed when we read this part of the story last week, how much did God speak over Elijah's life while he was in that place? Can you remember? God didn't speak a word for that, whether it was literally 40 days or whatever. It was a long time, big long journey, forty, uh, you know, 260 miles of walking alone, and God never said a word to him. In fact, the last thing he'd heard from God was, well, God's angel, was get up and eat and drink this. You're going to need this for the journey. And then that's it. There's no prophetic word, no vision, no dreams, nothing from God at all. It's just this long wait. But you can see how waiting for Elijah is probably not the waiting that we kind of think about in waiting. Waiting on God in a biblical sense is not sitting around on our bums doing nothing. You know? Waiting on God in the Bible is very, very different. And with Elijah, it has motion. It has movement. It has tra- trajectory. blah, blah. blah. He's moving towards God. He's traveling towards the mountain of God to meet with God. And so that tells us that waiting, waiting on God, there's action involved with that. It's, it's not passive in that sense. It's, there's, we're leaning into God. We're moving towards him. It also tells us that don't be all too surprised if you're seeking God that you haven't heard from him within the first five minutes. <laughs> sometimes seeking God just takes time. It just takes time. And I don't know, I'm not saying 40 is the magic number or anything, I like you know, 40 minutes, uh, 40 weeks, 40 years. I, I don't know. Uh, it's just a long, it takes time. And sometimes things happen in that meeting place with God after a period of time that don't happen within that first sort of, Token five minutes and maybe that we offer God as just before we zip off out to work or, or, or whatever. It takes time. Sometimes it really is about waiting on God. I was leaning in towards him. So not that passive thing. Next next phase, next part of the phase, is feeling. The second half of verse nine says, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So he's gone for this long period of time of waiting, traveling and waiting, heard nothing. And then when eventually God does speak, he asks Elijah a question. And it seems that God, just asking that question, it seems to unlock this outburst of emotion, all sorts of emotions that he's got bottled up inside of him fear and insecurity and doubt and frustration. He's depressed. And all that is like bottled up, he's cooped up inside, he's ready to explode. And it seems that God, just asking that question, just speaking a single sentence, takes the lid off, unlocks all of that emotion. It's as though after you know him being rested for a few days, and after him waiting on God for forty days, it's like Elijah seems to be in a better place to be able to at- articulate his how he's feeling, how, how, his, his emotions. He's still messed up. He's still not in a healthy place. But how much more communicative is he now than what he was before? I mean, before it was just a single line. Uh, suicide note type prayer, wasn't it? God, take me. I've had enough. I want to die. Just take my life, God. But now he's, like, he's willing to actually be honest with himself and be honest with God and just to kind of open up on the table, get on the table all these emotions. He's enabling himself, giving himself the ability or the freedom to, to feel. But not feel alone. He's feeling before God, with God. And then, of course, that kind of forces the next stage. Number four, he's naming. Not only does Elijah have the courage to actually feel all these emotions and pains, he, then he has the courage to actually name them, to speak them out before God. And that's all the good stuff, the bad stuff, and all the downright ugly stuff, the good stuff. You know, I've been zealous for your Lord. It's like, oh, I'm here, God. I've been zealous for you. I'm on fire for you. The bad stuff. All of Israel, they've rejected your covenant, God. They've torn down your altars. And then the downright ugly stuff. And then I, I put all your your uh, prophets to the sword, and they're out to kill me too. He laid it all out to God. Now, the truth is, if you know the story, which I'm sure you all do, <laughs> you if you know the story, the previous chapter actually shows that Elijah is not the only faithful prophet of Yahweh God. There's a guy called Obadiah, and he's described as a devout believer, and he hides away a hundred faithful prophets of God. So we know there are more. Um, at, you know, this is the time where Jezebel is trying to kill all the prophets and whatever, but there, there are more. And maybe it's just he didn't know that, He perhaps not aware of that. But I guess, though, for Elijah, it must have felt pretty lonely. He must have felt really alone He's like in his stand for the Lord. I mean, he certainly didn't have anyone running after him or running up to him for their, with their support when he was having the duel with all the uh, prophets of Baal. Or certainly when he's like walking on his journey, he didn't have lots of people coming up to him and say hey. So he probably did feel really alone. And the situation was really grim for him and he you know it's very real and we can kind of see that we, we hear that in the tone of his prayer effectively it was like, I'm done God I don't want to be a prophet anymore I didn't sign up for this and besides there's nobody out there to hear me speak anyway so do you know what God I've had enough now I don't know whether you have been anywhere near that that place yourself I've had enough I can't go on with this. Have you ever felt like that? I, I have. I, I, You know, many times I've, you know, just felt, and it's usually when you think, well, things can't possibly get any worse, and then they do. <laughs> it's like, I just can't cope anymore. I can't do this. And, I, and you, you know, you find yourself being honest. It's scary. I think it's, it's challenging and it's scary to be honest like that with yourself and honest with God to say, I've had enough, God. But the thing is, it's there where silence and solitude leads us. It, it brings us into that place of uh, revealing our emotions. Silence and solitude, I tell you, is not for the timid. <laughs> it really isn't for the timid. It's not all about us having a nice sort uh, of squeegee time with Jesus on our own. No, it's nice. I mean, it is that. I mean, I'll mean, rewind up a little bit. It is that. It is about us being touched by the heart and the grace of God through the spirit of Jesus. It, it, it's that. But silence and solitude is also about change. It's about conversion. It's about transformation. It's the place where the old me dies and the new me grows. The new me is born is, is developed. Yeah, right. Back when I started to lose my hearing, I had kind of mild to moderate, severe uh, mild to moderate hearing loss. Even back then, I just felt, man, I can't go on. And I, I, I said to God, God, I give up. I can't do this. I just can't lead effectively from this place of utter weakness. I cannot do it uh, and I don't know well I do know what it is but during those times of just pure honesty and openness with God before him he seems to have carried me through and give me strength and enabled me he strengthened me and had changed me changed my per- perceptions and, I, and my perspectives And so then I come to the next barrier and then another chunk of hearing is lost or another health issue or then some bunch, you know, key people from the church say, we're moving away, we're we're, we're leaving now. And So again, it's in that place of solitude where over and over again I keep coming to that place with God and giving him all the reasons for why I cannot continue, (laughs) I can't do this anymore, God. Uh, I'm just too broken I'm just too weak you know I can't even think how to quantify the hours that I have stood or sat before God and just wet in that place of utter utter weakness and said I can't do it I can't do it God and it's hard as again it's hard sometimes to be that honest about your fears with yourself and it's hard to be honest before God, and of course I'm trying to be honest <laughs> before everybody else here, and it's hard to be honest and open about our weaknesses and insecurities, but God does something in that place, he rebuilds us, he re- rebuilds me. And so it's only, actually it's only when I've kind of removed all of the distractions or removed myself from all of the distractions. When I've removed the scaffolding then that I've put up around my life or the things like you know various forms of entertainment and TV and the movies and the mobile phones and computers. When i remove myself from you know, just busyness of life. And remove myself from all of that and people and everything. It's, it's then when I get in the presence of God and I'm vulnerable and I'm naked and I'm broken. It's there where I actually start to face up to the fears and the um, the pains and the utter darkness sometimes. I think I said last week, you know, if this is where uh, silence and solitude leads us, you're probably all thinking, thanks Rob, I'm going to give that one a miss. I <laughs> I don't like the sound of silence and solitude. I thought it was didn't I? I thought it was pleasant, you know. And I think that's the problem. I'm sure when we have heard that phrase, I don't know what image you get in your mind. Maybe it's this: you hear that word, uh, the phrase, silence and solitude. And I think some people get this image of a person sat on a bed or on a cushion. You know pinching their, their finger and thumb you know together with this geeky smile on their face, that permanent smile, sort of i can 't even do it i don't want to do it I mean embarrass myself. <clears throat> the reality is pla- it 's a place of change and transformation, in other words, it 's a place of encounter with the living God, and sometimes that isn 't altogether comfortable <laughs> and when God speaks. When he questions, sometimes unpleasant feelings, they bubble to the surface. And pain and all these things are exposed before him. And you know what? I know nobody wants to go there. None of us want to go there. We try to avoid that at all costs. We don't want to be in that place where we have to deal with all those fears and insecurities that have got such control over our lives. But you know what? If you don't, those feelings are with you anyway. They stay with you anyway. They're there right under the surface. (coughs) They're right there with you. And you you might distract yourself. You may be able to kind of fill your life with stuff and fill your life with busyness like I do. Fill yourself with people or whatever. But they're still there. And you can deal with these feelings and these emotions in a healthy way. (laughs) Or you can allow them to rumble away under the surface. Surface. And they kind of like leak out in an unhealthy way. Because that's what fears and insecurities, all these emotions that go undealt with, that's what they do. They have this tendency to leak out into all sorts of areas of our life. Into relationships, in your marriage, into uh, your workplace, into church relationships. Just comes out. So the question is, do you want to allow that to leak out? Or do you want to actually take it out and deal with that in a safe place in the presence of God, in that solitary uh, place before God? Because if we bring it out there, if we bring it out in that place, if we take the courage to actually name our fears and name our emotions and our pains and our discouragement and disillusionment, as well as all the good positive stuff, (laughs) you know, let's not just isolate that, but if we bring it all out before God, it's there where we're going to experience freedom, a new freedom, and a transformed heart. Next one is, as I say, my favorite pastime event. I remember that thing. Hearing. yeah, Hearing. Coming back to First Kings 19. This is verse 11. We've got quite a bit of reading here. Um, the Lord said, over his face and he went out and and stood at the mouth of the cave then a voice said to him what are you doing here Elijah again he replied I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant they've torn down your altars put your prophets to death by the sword with the sword I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too the Lord said to him go back the way you came Go to the desert of Damascus. So go back right up to the north, northeast region where it came from. When you get there, a knight Hazael, king over Aram. Also a knight Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And a knight Elisha, son of Shaphat, or Shaphat, from abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. I need an award, I think, for trying to pronounce all this I say, I'm going to... I was hoping somebody would set up and clap, but no, no, thanks. (laughs) Um, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Azale, and Elisha will put to death who escape the sword of Azale. It's like a belt and braces situation there. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah... Is here on Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, for one chief reason. He needs to hear God. He needs to hear God speak into his situa- situation. He needed to get God's perspective on the circumstances, that are, everything that's happening. You know, we know what Elijah's perspective was, don't we? He vomited that up before God a few verses earlier. So he's, I, I want to know what God's perspective is here he needs to hear god and it said in the next in the in the text here that god's voice came to him and it came in this gentle whisper some versions translate that as the still small voice of god this quiet voice came and so from that we know god spoke right and then the next, few, uh, the next verse, he actually follows that Elijah actually hears. It he said, when, when Elijah heard it. So God spoke and Elijah heard it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, what did he say? <laughs> have, you ever, <laughs> have you ever wondered that? I, I mean, I read that like dozens and dozens of times. Uh, like probably you, but... I've listened to teaching, and I've read loads of commentaries on it recently, and I've looked into it. And do you know what actually God said? I have no idea, because it doesn't say. Nowhere. I, I don't know. Sorry to let you down with all that. But it doesn't say. We don't know what he said. But whatever God did say, it was a big deal to Elijah. It was a game changer for Elijah. It was a real shift. It's, you know, it, we tell that by the way that Elijah actually responds in verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So somehow you know, Elijah's got his cloak and he pulls it over his face, covers his face. Why did he do that? Well, at the time within that culture, to cover your face is to show a posture of reverence or respect to the person you're with. It's a clear kind of symbolic way and identifier to say that the person in front of you, you are way bigger and way more powerful than me. You're higher than me as a person. It's an expression of humility. It's saying to the other person, you know, I recognize who I am before you. I recognize my position before you. And you know what? I can't even look at you. You're so big. You're so awesome. And I can't even look at you. Now, this is really important to what's going on here. Because it's right here where Elijah's perspective uh, on what, is, what has happened and what is happening is kind of taking a shift. It's like this is the part of our next thing on the list. This is the part of being transformed phase taking place in Elijah. Now, in spite of the fact that he's had incredible, miraculous encounters with God in the past, you know, God has shown up, done incredible things. You know, we read about them l- last week. It just seems that it's here that Elijah is beginning to get a clearer understanding of who he is in the light of who God is. It's here, it's in the place of solitary and silence with God. Not in the dynamic, not in the big powerful events. His shift, his transformation is taking place in the quiet place. So he's been waiting on God, and then when God asks him this question again, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know about you, but again, it seems a bit odd. God, you're asking him exactly the same question (laughs) Did you not hear his answer before or something? It's just. I, 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 my idea, my thought is that it's almost like God is asking him that question again to allow Elijah now to process that question in the light of what you've just heard me say, the, the, the whisper, voice of God. Think about this question again in the light of what you've heard. But then you probably would have thought, uh, well, expected that the answer to be slightly different, and it wasn't. It was exactly the same. It was exactly the same response as what he gave before. And, and as I said last week, it's, it's kind of odd, but the only way I can kind of see, read into this is that his tone had changed, his attitude had changed. Or maybe in spite of having been in God's presence for that time, maybe he still didn't feel as though he was in a position to actually move on yet. Maybe he still felt a bit bound up by his feelings and these emotions and all these fears and what, not knowing what God was going to say to him next. Maybe he just felt safer to remain in God's presence where he was. I don't know, whether, have you been there? Have you ever been in a place, I don't know, you go to these big worship meetings, you really encounter something special of God. Or maybe it's in your own personal private time. It's just it's an amazing time in God's presence and you think to yourself, I just love the safety of this place, God. I want to stay here. <laughs> have you felt like that? I just thought, oh, do I have to go? Go back to my normal life and go back to work? And all that? I just want to remain here. I feel the intimacy, the warmth, the safety of being in your presence, God. I don't want to be anywhere else. I, I not know. Maybe that was what Elijah was doing. Just trying to know, uh, stall a little bit. <laughs> you know, uh, say the same answer. i uh, will do. I don't know. But then, the last few few verses again, we, we have God speaking once again. And this time, he's inviting Elijah to re enter the world that he'd run away from. It's the, it, this is the last phase um, to reconnect with society, reconnect with the world. But this time, we are reconnecting, or we, we're to reconnect or re enter by God's direction. And for his purposes, for his mission on the earth. You see, silence and solitude is not about just having a lazy time away with God, feeling all the peace and the nice nice stuff. As I said before, it is that. But God has so much more purpose in silence and solitude. In fact, everything surrounding God and his kingdom and his work, anything that he does and calls us to has great purpose. And we see this in Elijah's story in the text here as God... Tells Elijah to go back the way that he came. Says, so "Right, like, go back, go back to the desert." He said, "When you're there, I'm going to want you to anoint a couple of people and some new kings: Jehu, king over the whole of the kingdom of Israel, and Hazael, the king over Aram, their neighbouring kingdom." Um, and also, it's really quite interesting that God uses that phrase: "Go back the way you came." Go back. The way you came, it's like go back to that what you've run from. Ooh. You know, in that kind of like me centered thinking, we might say, Yeah, I've just had this like fantastic, meaningful time with God. I've been on that mountain, so I'm now coming down from the mountain and I'm God's gonna send me back on this different, this real super cool, this better route back. You know, it's gonna be different. I'm gonna come back down, you know, not I'm gonna come down uh, not come down on that, or oh, I'm going to come down on that without this illness route. <laughs> or come down without those challenges, relational challenges sort of a route. That's the route that I'm going to come down. Yeah. Instead, God says to him, go back the way you came. Go back to the valleys that you wrestled in. Go back to those that desert place where you fought and you struggled and that you felt threatened. Go back there. I don't know. Can you imagine Elijah's face? When God said that, well, you say, what, God? I okay, Back there? But the thing is, God is sending Elijah back to where he come from. It's nothing to do with God that's been a meanie. You know, God's not being a meanie and withholding good stuff from Elijah. He's a good and beautiful God. And he, does, he has wonderful things for us. It's just that he's doing something. And he's always been doing something. It's just we don't see what he's actually doing. The reason I believe that God sends him back the way, and sends us back the same way, is that when that, that what we've received in his presence has taken root in us, we can see that the scariness and the bigness of the circumstances that we run from, they aren't all that scary after all. Or they're, they're not all that big and controlling. They don't have the same power over us anymore. And so it's not that God is being mean or withholding things. It's just that he's doing something, and we don't always see it. It's like he says to Elijah, I want you to walk back down the way that you came so that you can see that what's actually taken place up here on the mountain, you'll actually see as you reconnect now, you're going to reconnect not as the same person. You've changed. You actually go back and reconnect with a new joy, with a uh, and new perspectives on on the world. It's like God, God still has his purposes. God still is outworking things within the world and he still wants to bless people and he still wants Elijah to fulfill his calling in the midst of all of that and us. And it's like he says, there's this guy called Elisha, I've earmarked this guy called Elisha and he's actually going to continue on the ministry that you have had, have uh, I uh, interested to you. And I want you to now go and I want you to anoint him, I want you to impart to, to him all the things that I've given to you so that the mission can continue on. And he's kind of like says, uh, You're not alone as well, by the way. You know, earlier on in the conversation with God, Elijah, he kept saying, or he, kept, he felt as though he was completely alone in all of this, <clears throat> that he was the only one left. But in uh, verse 18, God says, no, there are uh, 7,000. There are 7,000 who haven't abandoned me. And I think it was like God was encouraging him with that, saying, these people, these 7,000 aren't the fruit of your ministry. They're there because of you, because of your faithfulness. You were down, you were de- depressed, you were thinking, man, you know, I'm not only better than my ancestors, but there are thousands here because of your faithfulness, and because of what I was able to do through you. I love the story of Elijah. I so identify with the story of Elijah. Elijah is this, this coming to meet with God in this place of solitude, and all these pattern of events uh, that that seem to come up in his story. It's a journey which starts with him rested, being fully Rested physically, emotionally, spiritually, all interwoven, remember? He's completely rested. And he spends time, a lot of time, waiting on God. But it's not motionless. It's not passive. It, 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 you know, it's moving. He's it's, it's waiting on God with intention, with energy. his pursuit of God. He's leaning into God. And in that place, then he takes courage to actually feel. And not just to feel, but to actually name and speak out before God all these emotions, all of these feelings. And then finally, he comes to that place where he can actually hear God speak to him. And as a result of God speaking to him, he is transformed. He's able to gain a renewed perspective on himself and who he is in the light of who God God is. That then leads him to a place where he could actually return to the world that he had run from, and he could actually bless it. He could go back, and he could actually play his role in God's mission to the earth. In that solidified understanding of his true identity, his calling, and his fresh knowing of this good and beautiful God that he served, he was able to go. And this is our goal. This is our goal for silence and solitude, (laughs) It's to get into that place where we know God. It's to get into that place where I know who I am, uh, or I know who who God sees me to be. That's my true identity, and I know what He's calling me to do or to be. And the problem is, we have a whole host of voices coming in and trying to have an input in our pursuit of that, in our uh, discovery of those things. You know, think about when you're growing up and what your parents told you. Or what your parents failed to tell you and they should have told you. Or what, you know, peers at school and teachers, people that you look at, looked up to. All the things that they have told you about you and how you fit into uh, the world. Society at large, the town where we live. Satan, you know, Satan known in the Bible as the accuser of the brethren or the tempter. He often comes up to us. I know he's done that with people this morning he comes up and he whispers into your ear and tells you how he sees you. He knows you. I know what you're really like. He does that, and I know he's done that with, with individuals this morning. Some was praying with somebody earlier. We need to learn to stop listening to the wrong voices and start listening to and agreeing with the right voice that is actually saying who we really are, the truth of who we are. <clears throat> If you are listening to words, and it's hard to decipher, but if you are listening to words that are shameful or condemning, anything that's negative or uh, or condescending, I tell you now, that is not the voice of God. That is not the voice of God. We serve a God who is loving and compassionate, loves us dearly. That is the voice of the enemy that we're listening to. Now I have no idea what Elijah heard in that whisper but what I do know is that he realized more clearly who he was as he stood in the presence of God in that place of silence and solitude and when we allow ourselves to be in his presence when we allow ourselves to get into the presence of God and more than just a flitting five you know token five minutes <laughs> but I mean, really, get in his presence and wait on him. <clears throat> I don't know how long for. I, there's no method or model per se, but I just know that when we allow ourselves to be in the presence of God and we begin, we'll begin to see things how they really are, and that includes us, <laughs> that includes your identity. You start to see how he sees you. Which is incredible, you start to see things from God's view, from his perspective.